Thank you, Jerry. You know, we're preparing next week uh, our 80th anniversary service. It'll be outside right out here. So uh, that'll be at 10 o'clock, just one service. We'll be combining our services, just one anniversary service at 10 o'clock. And our, our hopes in that and having it outside is that we'll have uh, many of our folks who are still at home will be able to join us that day. Uh, and so that's one service at 10 o'clock uh, next week. And if the weather doesn't look good, keep your eyes open. We'll, we'll announce uh, an alternative plan. But we're confident and we're praying that the weather will be delightful uh, next week. And Cynthia will tell us more about that. So for better or worse, that's what we're preparing for. In all of our life, we prepare for something. We're always in a state of preparation, whether it's a student preparing for an exam to come, an assessment of some sort in our lives, whether it's preparing for the loss of a loved one or the arrival of a new life or a test or trial that's before us uh, or could be on the doorstep. We are always preparing. And so our present actions, our present habits reflect what we perceive to be ahead of us. So let me say that again. Our, our present actions, our present plans, they reflect what we believe is around the corner for us. And we all act consistent with those things. As we look at our text this morning in 1 Peter, the church is being taught by Peter that, already been taught, that suffering, necessary suffering that the Spirit can use as those who have been chosen by the Father, those who have, are being sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Christ, that suffering is necessary to grow them in, in, in Christ's likeness and for God to uh, demonstrate His glory among the nations and in Turkey as these believers suffer relationally, familially, because they're abiding in Christ and many of their family members are not, even many of the marriages being strained tremendously, but soon from the government. The emperor will crack down upon the believers in this area in a matter of decades. And so suffering that is to come, and, and what the church is to do, what the believers are to do, is to prepare today for suffering, necessary suffering that the Lord may have for them to endure tomorrow. So as we look at our text this morning, we note this first reality that when we choose not to prepare today, when we as believers choose not to prepare today for necessary suffering that God may have for us tomorrow, we don't demonstrate faith in a lack of preparation. Actually, we demonstrate pride. So, so uh, maybe you've been in this season of your life. Maybe you know of a loved one that's done something like this where they've had their, their eyes so narrow focused on the future, they almost had this naive spirit that nothing wrong could happen. And so they didn't prepare at all. And they may cloak that with the statement of faith. That's not faith in line in this text of suffering. That is pride. For the believers to not prepare today and to orient their lives today appropriately, uh, and we'll discuss what that looks like here in just a moment, to not pursue the Lord in that way today actually demonstrates pride because it communicates Holy Spirit, we know you sanctify us by your word and by suffering as we discussed last week, looking at these first 12 verses. So in our lives, if we're not preparing for suffering he may have for us tomorrow, what we're saying is, I'm actually so holy that, Holy Spirit, I don't think you could sanctify me by suffering. That could happen because I'm already so progressively holy in my walk with you. That's what we're communicating when we don't adjust our lives accordingly for suffering that the Lord may have for us tomorrow. So, how do we do this? We ask ourselves two questions. We want these to be in everyone's toolbox as a believer, that every church, everybody gathered would have this in our toolbox. Number one, we would ask the question, how are we training our minds? 
how are we training our minds? So if we are going to prepare today for suffering that the Lord may have for us tomorrow, this a little while of suffering, we have to ask the question, how are we training our minds? He says at the beginning of verse 13, preparing your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. The ESV says preparing our minds. The New King James, a little more literal on this, says gird up the loins of your mind. To, that, to us as English readers, they're like, that's really weird. Uh, but in that culture, in that time, it referred to the practice of a soldier tucking up their flowing garments so their legs would be nimble, ready for battle. That's what he's telling them to do. Uh, one, uh, the late John Eliot, uh, expert in Greek, he translates this as roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready for this. It is very much the general telling the soldiers lock and load. It is very much the, the mom uh, preparing to turn into Chick-fil-A off North Street and saying, hold on. It is the idea of get ready for action that is to come. Prepare yourselves for something that's to happen. That's what Peter says the church is to do today. Whether suffering is happening or not in your particular life, though it's impacting others, and I'll be clear in this. Uh, there are, you may not realize, there are believers every Sunday that gather that are having family trials, serious family tensions. Some family members have cut off family members because of their commitment to Christ in East Texas, okay? So don't make the mistake of saying, well, it's the Bible Belt, therefore no. No, there are believers that sing around you, that gather around you uh, on a Sunday morning basis, that are getting coffee outside with you on a Sunday morning basis, that gather together and they're Family relationships are strained because of their commitment to Christ as the final authority for their life. Their belief that they're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone and abiding by His Word is their final authority. And so though this, we're looking at a time in past where physical suffering was more reality for them, I want to take this as well into an application for us. Now, we have international students here. We have uh, many students from Nigeria here. And in Nigeria, just this last month, for 395 believers were martyred in gathering together in their local churches. And many more than that injured for the cause of Christ, for their allegiance to Christ. So suffering is very real in touching people that gather in our congregation. So how are we preparing? How are we preparing appropriately today? We're to, to, to gird our minds to prepare our minds. So now, minds, you notice we say minds in our English translations, prepare your minds. Now, one person doesn't have multiple minds. they got one mind. One mind. But what's he doing? He's, the translators are showing us what the Greek is very clear in. These are all, uh, even though we have a, a wealth of great Bible translations, there's so many good Bible translations. In English, we are spoiled with riches, right? So don't be killing each other over what translation is the best, or you're like, no, no, no. We have so many good ones, right? so many delicious translations. But if there was another one that we were to add to the pot, it'd be great to have a new Southern Bible. That'd be great. In which they put all the y'alls in there. Because the you doesn't communicate in our English. You could be talking to you, or it could be talking to you, right? All of us. In the Greek, it comes out very clear. And in other languages, it comes out very clear. But in our English, it doesn't communicate. But these are all y'alls. So he's telling them all, prepare y'all's minds for battle for this. Prepare yourself for this. The, the mind is the center of understanding. It's the place of the battle plans. And he's telling them in this way to orient your lives to prepare for suffering. Get your minds ready. Why? Even though you're believers that there are other enemies 
There are other worldviews that are longing to capture your minds. It is very much the Ephesians 5 text that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, telling them to to be sober-minded, to not be drunk with wine, but to be led or filled by the Spirit, to walk by the Spirit under His influence, not the influence of alcohol in that way. And so this is a clear statement for us as believers that we should never be naive. We should always be aware that there are other worldviews that are longing to sneak in and to capture our attention, to gain our affections and allegiances. So we have to be watchful. We have to be sober-minded, ready for the battle before us. So even though we're saved individually and brought into the faith, we're saved into a family, a family of believers as we walk out the faith together. We suffer together. We encourage each other together. That's the goodness that the Lord has for us. As we're not saved to be lone rangers, we're saved into a local families of God to walk out and abide in the Spirit. So all of these things in this way, what's it mean? It means that we are to have in our mind, very simply, a situational awareness is how we would say it today. We wouldn't say, gird up the loins of your mind. We would say, are you situ- situationally aware? Who could teach us this better than our frontline workers, than our uh, policemen and police women and soldiers who have to take on the mind about them of such an awareness of the situations that they're in that even when they clock out, even when they leave their police car, even when they're off duty, their minds are always situationally aware. They're always seating to, to watch the doors, to watch the entrances. They cannot help it. They're constantly situationally aware. And that's what Peter tells the church. Make sure your minds are situationally aware because there are enemies that are lurking to lull you to sleep so that suffering catches you off guard. So situational awareness we build in our life. And is there anyone more qualified than this? Is there anyone more qualified than Peter? Peter, the same one we read about in the Gospel of John who denied Jesus three times for fear of suffering, fear of being aligned with Jesus was going to cause some suffering, physical, relational, social suffering, and he denied Jesus three times. That fear took him off guard. His mind was not situationally aware. He did not yet have this indwelling of the Spirit. But is there anybody more qualified then to give us instructions of Peter who would know what it is to deny Jesus in face of suffering and also know what it is to follow Jesus all the way till his own cross? that he would experience as a believer laying his life down. So we as a church body, we are wise to be sober-minded. We'd ask ourselves, how are we training our minds? And secondly, out of love for one another, we would say, where is your hope? Who is holding our hope? Secondly, verses 13 through 16, who is holding our hope? Now back in verse 6 of chapter 1, Peter, you you can feel the love from the words that he writes. He speaks of Jesus as the one you love, even though you do not see Him. The one you believe in, even though you do not see Him. And now we're reminded of Jesus, the one that our hope is in. He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What's that a reminder of? It's a reminder that our hope cannot be found here in an unbelieving world. Our hope cannot be rooted here. 
That doesn't mean we don't have a presence of mind as we go through life and we pray and we plan and we are evangelistic and intentional in all that we do. Certainly we are. But we must know as believers that our hope will be fully revealed at the coming of Jesus Christ, the one we love, the one we serve, the one who will have glory, honor, and praise for us in His revelation. He has to be the one we center our hope on. And what an appropriate text on the week of an election. Now as believers that God has sovereignly placed us here in the United States, we should vote. We should be engaged in the political process. We shouldn't be ashamed to to be involved and and to to use what rights we have as citizens. To, To pray for and to ask God to do a work not only in our country that laws would more clearly reflect a fear of God and an honoring of God in all those ways. The sanctity of life in the womb and the unborn. To advance religious freedoms and protect religious freedom. We should be, not be afraid to vote in that way that honors and reflects those components. But we should not be mistaken to think that our hope is in this world. It cannot be, as Jerry prayed a few moments ago. And God's so good, and we see in history that He can use crooked, wicked sticks to make straight lines of righteous and good judgments, be it Cyrus, the Persian king. Where is your hope? Where is our hope? Let me give you a good example. In our country right now, all across the board, there is a a near worshipful hope placed in government and political life. A near worshipful allegiance. I'll give you one example. It was viral. You might have seen it this week. It had millions and millions of views. This young woman, I would guess in her her young 20s, she recorded a video. It was one of those those word-like card videos. So she had a card she would play and had music playing in the background. And on the cards, as you read them, uh, you begin by seeing, and she begins by saying that her father is dying. And as she continues with the cards, she asked him to, to vote for her particular candidate. And she has other sisters. And she was grieved, and she begins crying. And you presume, as she, before she gets to the next one, clearly her dad must have died. This is sad. But she begins to have tears, and as the cards continue on, you realize they're tears of joy. And the next card reveals and says, he decided and he told her last night that he wants to honor the desire of his daughters, and he'll change his political party and vote for her candidate. And she's got tears of joy down her face. Where is that woman's hope of hope? And can where she has that hope of hope actually give her steadfast, unchanging, unshakable inheritance? No. That's a tragedy. That's not encouraging. That's a tragedy. So as believers, we have to remind each other, though involved and though engaged, where is my hope? Not said in a weak way, but where is our hope? And the believers who hear this letter are reminded that their hope is not that there will be a new emperor. Their hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the call of the bride of Christ to remind each other that all who place their hope in Christ, they have an unshakable hope. That the shifting sands of this world and the injustices seen in this world cannot shake. And that's the good reminder that the beloved of God have, those who place their faith and trust in Christ. That's what prepares us for suffering. A steadfastness of mind in a presence of hope. What does this hope look like? He says, instead, aiming to be obedient children. He gives us a negative picture and a positive picture. So, a negative description, 
of what that doesn't look like, what they're not to do, and then a positive picture. What's it mean to be obedient children preparing for suffering? What's it mean to have our hope in Jesus Christ who is to come, who will reign from the earth, who will make all things right? What's that mean to have our hope in His kingdom, the King of kings and Lord of lords? He tells us in verse 14, it means to prepare today and to live today, believer, not conform to the passions of our former ignorance. So, just as in Leviticus, four different times, the statement, be holy because your God in heaven is holy. Peter applies it to the beloved, to the believers, in how they're to live their lives today. These believers coming, multitudes of them coming from Gentile, non-Jewish backgrounds, he applies it to them that in faith, by repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, they're now in their lives to reflect the holiness of God because they are holy in Christ. Holy and to be holy. So he says in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That's the negative side. It's not just talking about sexual things. That it does include that. We know scriptures are very clear that, that marriage, the covenant that God has given, is, in, 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 uh, is between a husband and a wife till death do they part. This is the, the marriage relationship God's created. So any sexual activity outside of that is sin before a holy God. But it's more than that. So all of us who gather this morning, majority of us believers, we had an allegiance of worldview before we came to Christ. It is to choose not to live by those passions of our self-lordship in our pride. It's an intentional rebuking of those, he says, not conform to the passions of our former ignorance. Instead, what's the positive sketch? Look in 1516, this is good. 1516, here's the positive. And as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Why? Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. He gives a positive and a negative. Here's what it looks like positively. Here's what it looks like negatively. Do this and don't do those things you used to do. It's just like what Paul said to the church in Romans 12. It's almost like it's the same Holy Spirit riding through Peter and through Paul to build up the flock. Romans chapter 12, here's, here's, listen for the negative and the positive. Romans chapter 12, Paul says to the church in Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Here's the positive to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. There's the positive. Present your bodies holy and acceptable to God. And the negative side, the negative picture, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Isn't God's Word good? Isn't the Holy Spirit good? This is a Word that's worth building and anchoring our life into for all seasons that are to come. That's the goodness of our God. That's the goodness that we have as believers preparing today for necessary suffering that may come tomorrow, which leads us secondly to say this. When we prepare today for necessary suffering that is tomorrow, we communicate a knowledge of these four components. The choice to prepare today for necessary suffering tomorrow, secondly, reflects a right knowledge of God. It reflects a right knowledge of God. Not simply an, I know of this truth, but I know of this God. Because I know Him, I'm going to live today in accordance to what He tells me. On the unshakableness of His Word, applying it by the Holy Spirit, He who indwells us as believers. 
And so what do we know first? We see in verse 17 that when we choose to prepare today for necessary suffering that may come tomorrow, we choose to show that we know God and He alone is the, imperfect, is the perfect and impartial judge. He alone is the perfect, impartial, unbiased judge. When we say the word righteous or just, it's by His standard, not man's standard of justice or righteousness. That's true righteousness and justice. When we see something in life that is truly righteous and just, it reflects the character and unchanging nature of God and the word that He's given us in Scripture. That is an impartial judge, which means a judge that does exactly what we see in verse 17. Do you see that? And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially, here's what it is to judge impartially, each one's deeds according to their own. And so He tells them then, conduct yourselves with fear it should impact our present life throughout the time of your exile, which will be until Christ comes again or we die. Impartial judges. Every culture that has ever been known to man could have read this text in First Peter, and we could walk away saying, hmm, compared to our justice system, because there is no perfect impartial justice. There will not be on this earth. Brent, we should still pray for those things and hope for those things and, and be involved to strive for those things? Of course. But the hope that the believer's suffering in present-day Turkey that he's writing to are encouraged because there is an impartial judge. He will not act inconsistently with his nature and essence and being. And that is good news for the believer. He doesn't gain in knowledge. He's never surprised. He's not evolving or developing or growing. He doesn't grow in love. He doesn't grow in mercy. He is perfect in all of his ways, in all of his knowledge, in all of his actions, in his will. That's the goodness of our God. Now, let's think of, let's get a picture to see in the context if we could airdrop ourselves into the first century world to understand injustice. So, when we read a text like this, what's it mean that God is impartial in his judgments. The judgments, the justice system of the first century Roman world was radically different than what we see today in a multitude of ways. And we think any context of our own culture today is we say, well, there's a just, an injustice there. Let's airdrop into the first century world. You remember Paul, there was no right that you would receive any sense of a speedy trial. Paul is a citizen And in his crime, in his proclaiming of Christ, it will take five years before he will ultimately see the final judgment, which will be because he keeps appealing these things, and God uses all of these things. You realize that God uses all of these facing out. If he didn't appeal these things as a Roman citizen, Paul leans on his rights as a Roman citizen, and he appeals the judgment of the lesser judges. And it goes all the way up to the point where finally after five years to get the final judgment, five years, he spends time in house arrest and in literal prison cells. But in God's sovereignty, through all that suffering, God would use it by giving us multiple letters of Scripture and multiple testimonies of the present days as he would go from jail cell to jail cell and hearing to hearing to present Christ crucified, the hope of glory for the Jew and the Gentile to all who believe. God used suffering 
But how was the court system of the day? Your chances of getting justice if you were not in the highest class, which was called the senatorial class, was not great. If you were in the highest favored class, which was the senatorial class, your chances of getting justice were favorable. So how do I get in? How do you get into the senatorial class? This is all it takes. Generational connections and 800,000 denarii. Remember, a denarius was one day's wages. So all it took you was 2,200 years of wages if you saved up every dime. And then maybe you could get into the highest class. So let's get saving. So if you were in court against somebody of the senatorial class, what do you think the chances are that you're going to get a favorable ruling? Zero. So what if you're in the equestrian class? This is the class right below the senatorial class. Well, how do I get into that class? Good news. We know somebody from Scripture, Pontius Pilate was in this class. All you needed was 400,000 denarii. That's only 1,100 years of wages you could save up. If you had a system against, if you had a claim against an injustice that Pontius Pilate did and you took him to court, what do you think the chances are that you're going to win that battle? Now, what if you were in the multitude, the free person's class of Rome? The free person's class was the largest class in Rome. You're a free citizen. It's what, it's what Paul avails to in his rights. You had a right to go to court. But if a crime was committed against you, there was no public defendant that was offered to you, no public defense, no attorney to defend you that the state provided. You had to pay for one your own. So even if you were a free citizen and you couldn't afford it, then you had to defend yourself legally against somebody that was coming with paid professionals. How do you like your chances? Now, how many of you, let's tell on ourselves, how many of you have ever seen Judge Judy? I, totally, I would watch that when I get home from school. I was trained to be a lawyer. I had to know what Judge Judy was going to be doing. You know, she's like the highest paid TV person. It's incredible. She's paid so much money. Totally nothing to do with what we're talking She could make it into the senatorial class, all right? So Judge Judy would have been good. But I say that because the Roman justice system was Judge Judy of the day. It was verbal gladiators. It was the form of entertainment in Rome. For your case, you could hire different people to come and speak because you could have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people coming and watching your court case that would finally get presented. And you could hire people called super boasters, super praisers. You could pay them money. They were like the Hollywood actors at the time. They would come in and give this huge speech as a character witness to you. There's, record, there's not recordings. There are documents of these speeches lasting upwards of six hours. It was a full play. It was dinner and a movie. And the judge would rule by no objective standard. There was no sense that he had to follow a previous ruling. The judge could rule however and whenever he wanted to. And how do you think he usually ruled? How the crowd was persuaded. Now, I know we've never heard of a politician changing their convictions to appease the masses. That sounds crazy, right? But that's how these political judges operated. And so if you could only afford some, you couldn't afford the high cost of these Hollywood-type super praisers, good luck. Good luck. Now, what if you were a slave? A third of the Roman world, upwards of a third of the Roman world were slaves. So as Rome increased its territory, if it didn't kill you or take you captive where you were, it could take you captive as a slave. If you, went, if you were bad with money and got into serious debt, 
You got sued and you lost one of those things, guess what? You could become a slave. If you were a slave, anything could be done to you. You would never stand a day in court because you were not a person. You were a living tool in the first century world. You had no sense of possible justice that could come to you. You had no rights. You were a tool. You were a thing. So when you hear the words that Peter gives, that you know God the Father, the impartial judge, who judges each one according to what they have done. That goes to the slave, as we'll see the population of slaves addressed soon. See, Christians in the first century world are among the only population that gives slaves full human rights because they're created the image of God, worthy of dignity, value, and respect. Christians led that charge and were marked totally different from the majority of the Roman world. So believer, how now do you listen to Romans chapter 8 that tells us, who then will bring a charge against God's elect? That means even the emperor will stand before the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected one. That means even those friends or family members or the government or these relationships of authority that abuse them, they will stand before the God who gives perfect justice that no amount of money or wealth or power or networking or generational influence could ever impact. That's what we communicate as believers when we act accordingly today for suffering tomorrow. That there is a God of the universe who is impartial and every man and woman will stand before Him. Now, before we get too happy in that, I want to give an applause for the impartial God, because we should, right? Secondly, when we live our lives accordingly, we communicate that we know that our sin is so great that we can never pay the debt owed to the impartial judge. The good news is that there is an impartial judge who will judge with perfect justice all the living and all the dead. Death is no escape from this judge. Death is no escape. So Jesus would tell them in John chapter 3, the wrath of God abides on you already. The just one, the impartial judge, his judgment rests upon you already as an evildoer. And death will not hide you. So it's good that God is impartial. He will not be bribed. He will not be impressed. Or he will not be discouraged to judge away from you because of something you've experienced or the way you look or how much money you make or whatever you've done. But the reality of this in verse 18, we know that our sin is so great that we can never pay the debt owed to our impartial judge. Look at verse 18. Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed. Ransomed. How did slaves receive their freedom then? There was a whole class I skipped over called the freedmen class which were slaves that ultimately would have their full debt eventually paid. They weren't citizens, but they were out of that class. As we talked about last week, they could now go where they wanted to go and do what they desired to do. But what hope did you have to pay that debt against you if you didn't have the necessary funds that would take a lifetime to make? You were hoping one day maybe a benevolent benefactor 
would come by and pay your debt. That was your only hope. And so Peter takes this Roman understanding of being ransomed or redeemed. He takes this Jewish idea which existed far, far before Greece or Rome ever existed as empires. In, in Psalm 34, 22, the Lord redeems the life of His servant. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. It's Deuteronomy chapter 7, what God says to Israel, verse 8, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out of the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore, listen, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Be it a Jew who's come to place her faith in Christ or a Gentile, the debt before every one of us is so great that we could never pay it. No one from the senatorial class, not Pontius Pilate from the equestrian class, not even the emperor can pay the debt before him, before a holy God, the impartial judge. Our sin is so great, but there's good news, isn't there, beloved? There's good news. Third, because we know God loves us so much, not that he would send gold or silver, to pay our debt. But God loves us so much that He sent His righteous Son to pay our personal debt. Jesus was sinless in His life, but He was righteous in all that He did. He fulfilled all the demands of the law. Jesus didn't just not sin. Jesus lived righteous holiness in all that He did and said. And He is the only qualified sacrifice. That's what Peter tells us here. Do you see that in verse 19? But with the precious blood of Christ, that's how we were ransomed and redeemed. What of the precious blood of Christ? He uses the Old Testament imagery, like a lamb without spot or blemish. That's how great our sin is. That's how great our debt is. And that's how great our God is. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever works, no. That whoever tries to sin less, no. That whoever believes would have everlasting life. That's good news. It's good news because there is an impartial judge. And it's good news because the debt is so great no one can pay it. But it's good news because God in His love would send His only begotten Son for us. He lived a sinless life, died to make right death upon the cross, was buried and rose again. He ascended to heaven, He rules, and He will come again one day, bringing about perfect justice. That's our hope. As Paul says to the church in Corinth, you were bought with a price. So we can look at a believer and say, if you don't feel valuable, if you feel worthless or you're wrestling with depression, we'll talk about that in future sermons in 1 Peter. Do you know that depression rates among high school and teenage girls from 2009 to 2019 have doubled? Doubled. If you don't feel beautiful or worthwhile or valuable, young man or young woman or older man, older woman, 
You were bought with a price. What was that price? The great value of the love of God for us in Christ. He's worth your life. So Paul could tell that same church in Corinth, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Prepare today for suffering the Spirit may have for you tomorrow. Fourthly, fourth, verse 21, we know that like Christ, believers endure present suffering for purposes greater than what we could possibly see in the now. Isn't that right? Peter stays faithful. We saw at the end of the Gospel of John that, that, that Jesus would be faithful to Peter all the way to the end of the cross. And Peter is faithful till his very end. Paul is faithful to their very ends. But the suffering in the court cases and the unjust court cases, we would have looked at the time and said, that's a terrible ruling. And yet God was working through it. And so the believers reminded, no, 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 God is working through things we can't put our finger on. When we read the Gospel of John, what did we see? What did we see? We see that those that spent all their time with Jesus, the disciples, and the men and women that were with Him, Jesus told them of the crucifixion and suffering that would happen. He told them of His burial and resurrection. In John chapter 2, early on, He tells them, they'll destroy this temple and He will take it up again on the third day. And what did they do when they saw this unbelievable act of unjust suffering? of the lamb who would be led to the slaughter. They scattered. And in a lack of faith, they said, we don't know how any good could come out of this, but what do we do now as believers? We have a bunch of empty crosses in our buildings and around our homes. Why? Because the greatest act of suffering is our hope. We worship the God who works redemption and ransom from heartache. He brings life from death. He brings hope from hopeless situations. That's the gospel message. Applying that personally and in application, that means that the believers that are being martyred, God is not silent or absent. Believers who are abiding in the Lord and lose their family and lose friends and lose children and lose parents, lose jobs, God is not absent. But God works purpose in suffering that none of us would draw out. But He works it for His glory in ways we'll never imagine. And that's part of trusting Him that He is God and we are not. And thank the Lord that that's the case. Amen? Now, the God who is faithful and just in all His ways is worthy of our praise. And He's worthy of the adjusting of our lives. So in our next step, I want to ask you a question. I'm going to ask you a question our next step. It's an exercise, not a physical exercise. Don't worry. But here's the exercise I'd like you to do. If you were to say you had your calendar on your phone or you have a day planner somewhere, if you were to look back at your October 2020 and you were to assess that and say, how well did I prepare for suffering that God may have me to endure in November of 2020? How would you respond in looking at that? Would you look at that and say, yeah, I, I'm going to go ahead and hope that uh, this is a good month? Or would you also on the other side look and say, thank you, God, that I'm gathering together again with the saints. Thank you, God, that I was able to 
pray and talk with this person. Thank you, God, that I'm healthier and more ready for suffering in November than I would have been in October. And on the other side is believers who are committed, we're accountable to each other as a congregation, that we could say and look back at that same October calendar and say, thank you, God, that I had an opportunity to connect with this brother or sister in Christ. God, that you used me to sharpen them, to help them when they were down, to get them up, should you have suffering to sanctify them in store for them this month. And so, with that exercise, would you then look at your November ahead and say, Lord, help me to prepare today for suffering that is necessary you may have for me tomorrow because you're worth my life and demonstrating me as a testimony of glory and hope. Secondly, believers struggle. We struggle to remember this fourth point, that God works purpose through suffering. When we forget those first components of the gospel message, it's why our services are organized. God, man, Christ responds. And they will be until the Lord comes. Because we have to be reminded, if we forget any of those three components, we forget the Lord and His impartial justice, or truly impartial judgment. If we forget the reality of our hopelessness on our own, if we forget the work that Christ has done, we will struggle to see the purpose of response and presence of today. And so we might pray, and you might pray, Lord, would you bring to remind any of these that I may have glossed over in my week and help me to, to live joyfully accordingly. And then finally, baptism. At the end of every service, you'll always have staff here in the front to be able to pray with you and encourage you before you go home that day. If you have questions about what it means to follow Christ, if you have questions about what baptism is and what it represents, how it depicts those components as we practice believer's baptism, come and let us counsel you and help walk you in this next step the Lord may have for you in this life. He's worthy of our lives. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we sing glory and praises to our King.